catching sight on television of a wildlife cameraman in the wilderness was once not an easy thing to do. Natural history films usually presented a picture of the world in which human beings did not exist. They showed the Garden of Eden as it was before Adam and Eve appeared. And that was not such a bad thing to do. It was what lots of us wanted to see, how the world worked when allowed to operate by its own rules. But then, quite suddenly, that changed. Major natural history programmes were followed by short mini-films showing the production team at work. Directors turned to the camera to explain the problems that they were facing. Blizzards arrived and confined the team to their tents for days on end. Cameramen in jungles, covered with sweat, sat dejectedly, having failed once again to catch even a glimpse of their quarry. And then, just as the team, having failed to achieve their task, are starting to pack up their gear and return home, the difficulties vanish. The long-sought-after animal appears, and all is well. As indeed viewers knew it would be, having seen already the successful sequence in question. These entertaining glimpses behind the scenes were not made because the producers felt a certain need to meet the demands of a few television critics for transparency about the way such programmes were made, nor did they stem from a desire by cameramen to share the limelight with their animal stars. The reason came from a much more mundane source, television schedulers. Natural history programmes, then as now, were usually made as co-productions with networks in the United States. There, every hour of television had to contain ten minutes of commercial advertising, so the programmes themselves lasted for only fifty minutes. BBC networks, however, did not show commercials, and as a consequence such a length produced a certain untidiness in an evening schedules. Programmes began or ended ten minutes before or after the hour, and eventually the moment arrived when British schedulers, in an effort to tidy things up, suddenly ruled that wildlife programmes themselves should occupy the full hour. That was something of a shock to those of us who were making them. I was in the middle of filming a twelve-part series. Several of our programmes had already been finished, and they only lasted as instructed for fifty minutes. They had been carefully scripted and filmed to suit that length, and it would have been very difficult to extend them with sequences that we had, without them seeing tiresomely padded out. Eventually we solved the problem with what among ourselves we came to call, clumsily but nonetheless accurately, the making of. So directors, sound recordists, researchers and cameramen suddenly stepped into the limelight. From such films, viewers were able to see proof of what I have known for many years, that if you're going to get into difficulties when travelling in some remote and hazardous part of the world, your ideal companion would be a natural history cameraman. I should perhaps add that during most of my time there were not many camera women. They have powers of persuasion that soften the hearts of customs officials and even armed military border guards. They can produce edible meals from the most unpromising ingredients. They can, of course, diagnose and usually cure almost any problem involving a vehicle of any kind. 
They can even improvise solutions to problems with newfangled high-tech devices that they've never even seen before. I recall one occasion in the Galapagos when a cameraman fixed a sudden fault that had developed in his electronic camera by using a hypodermic needle taken from the medical kit and held in position deep in the camera's entrails with a blob of chewing gum. Gavin Thurston, the author of this book, is one such. I've worked with him on and off for over 30 years, and I can vouch for the fact that he has all these talents and more. He is, as his diary entries reveal, a most knowledgeable and perceptive naturalist. He has endless patience and that invaluable and extraordinary ability to anticipate what an animal is about to do before it does it, so that the camera is ready to follow it. But now I realise that he has one talent that I had not previously suspected. He is a vivid writer with an ability to describe scenes with great economy and unflinching accuracy. So here is the literary equivalent of the visual making of. I sometimes meet people who tell me, with the intention of being entirely complimentary, that they enjoy making ofs even more than the programmes to which they are attached. I wouldn't be entirely surprised if some might feel the same about the following pages. <laughs>